Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is our first week of our new series called Off With The Old, which is all about what it means to be righteous. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. I'm going to start by doing something a little different. We're going to start with a little interactive part of the message this morning. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a couple pictures of people, and I'm going to ask you to see if you could help identify something about that person. So let me give you an example. The first one, I'm going to put up a man, and we're going to say that this man is a doctor. Okay, good. Okay, we all agree. So you got the idea. Um, Okay, so this one's, I think, even easier. You know, we could look at this. This man here is a football player. Uh, let's change pace a little bit. We have a woman. Let's say th- this woman is a bride. Okay. Uh, one more. These couple people. These men are firemen. Now, now, let me ask you. It might seem like a silly question. How did you know that? The clothes. Yeah, you look at, you look at what they're wearing, and it's obvious from what they're wearing what they are. Their, their clothes say something about them. And, um, and, and we look at this, and we... It's something we really all understand in, in life. You know, even all of us, we get dressed each morning, and we dress in a way that is, is kind of um, choosing the clothing that is going to set the day. It's going to whatever we're doing that day. If we're going to the pool, we wear one thing. If we're going to work, and depending on where we're going, if, you, and, you know, if you're in certain jobs, you dress for the job, and we understand that. And, and you think about not that not only in the standpoint of what we do, but even what we dress, to some degree, even defines our behavior. So, you know, for anyone that, you know, that plays football or that you know anything about it, when you get men in a locker room and they start dressing for football, they start, it starts changing them even when they're getting ready. So they put on the shoulder pads and they're getting dressed and they're hammering each other on the shoulder pads. You know, get ready. All right. They're growling and you're ready to go to high five and, and, and you're know, headbutting. They're, they're ready for it just as they get dressed, that's rolling them up. Now, I've yet, I've done a lot of weddings in my years. I've yet to walk into a room where you have a bride and, and all the bridesmaids that are there getting dressed for the wedding and they're banging on each other's shoulders and, are you ready? Yeah, and they're growling at each other. Yeah, right, headbutting, you know. That's yet to happen. You know, it, it might yet still, it's yet, I've never had that happen. And, and you might be thinking, well, well, that's women. Well, even for men. I, I've yet to walk into a group of men getting ready for weddings. Once they put on the tux or the, the suit, I mean, there's something about that that you know, okay, we're getting dressed for a different kind of occasion. They're not grunting and head-bunning either. Now, I did find this one picture of this wedding party that was playing football in their wedding garb, and, and I thought it was really strange. And then I noticed that there's a big maize and blue M in the middle, and I thought, oh, they're from Michigan. That explains it all. Okay, that's just... <laughs> Now, even you, this morning, you got dressed, and you dressed for the occasion. When I got dressed this morning, I mean, I could have put on a swimsuit. You're all glad I didn't. Uh, you know, I could have put on sweats, I, and I dressed for the occasion because I, in a sense, had an identity, and I'm, I'm dressing in consistency with that identity. And, uh, and likewise, even if you came in this morning and somebody walked in with a football outfit, you know, you're in the wrong place. If somebody walked in in a bridal gown, you know, you're wrong place or wrong time because we don't expect someone to come in on a regular Sunday morning wearing those things. Now, there's something there that 
I think we're going to, a concept we're going to see fleshed out here in this section of the Bible. Paul really talks about this idea of dress. You know, in Ephesians, he's been talking about our identity in Christ, and, and as if we're followers of Christ, we have this new identity. We have all these blessings. And then he builds off of what he's taught in chapters 1 through 3, and he said, okay, now practically, what does this look like to live out? And in this section, what he's talking about specifically is what does it mean to live out this identity as a follower of Christ? What does it practically mean in our lifestyle? And in describing the lifestyle of a believer, he goes to the imagery of clothes, of what we wear. He says, in a sense, we should wear something. We should have a lifestyle that, that literally is, is like clothes that we wear that make us distinguished, that set us apart. And it should be something different than what we used to wear. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. In a sense, he's saying, before you were a believer in Christ, you had a lifestyle. And you live that. It's, he talks about it being your old self. That's your old set of clothes, your old behavior. People saw that. That's what defined us. That's the former way of, of life before we had a relationship with Christ. But now, as followers of Christ, we should take off that old self and instead, verse 24, we put on this new self. We take off the old clothes, the old behavior, the old lifestyle, and we put on this new lifestyle like new clothes that, that looks different. That's a lifestyle that's created after the likeness of God. It continues on later in the verse that it says it should be defined by righteousness and holiness, that we should look like Christ, like our, like, like our Father. But what's that look like? What's that mean? And even as it's interesting, is, is, uh, I think for a lot of people, if they're asked, you know, what is Christian morality? What does it mean to live as a Christian? If I were to go out and ask 100 people at random, when you think about a Christian, what should define their lifestyle? I think the vast majority of people would say something along the lines of, well, it's a set of rules, things you can't do, things, you know, rules that you should keep and sins that you should avoid. And so they will often think, you know, well, it's don't lie and don't steal and don't use bad language and, you know, no sex outside of marriage and don't get drunk on weekends. And in fact, I remember, you know, I spent a couple of years at a very conservative Christian college my last two years of, of college, and, and they really emphasized the rules. And, and people even joked about that, you know, that, that at that school, you know, a good Christian is someone who doesn't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls that do. And, uh, and we would joke, but it was only somewhat jokingly because... The fact is, is that I would talk to a lot of people that were in that group, and, and they would, you know, say, well, you know, I go to work, and, and my coworkers know I'm a Christian because after work, they all go to the bar and have a drink, and I don't go because I don't drink. They, they know that I'm a Christian because I don't drink. See, what defines me is what I don't do by the rules that I keep. Now, here's the problem with that. Even staying within this whole illustration that Paul's using of clothing, so if we define our Christian life, our Christian morality, and our character by what we don't wear, by the, by the things of the world that we've taken off, what we've done is we've taken it off, but we've not put anything back on. What, what we're defined by is not the righteousness, the, the, the new self that we're to be wearing, but all we're saying is, I'm not like that. And what we're going to see is that if we take off the old and we don't put off something new, sooner or later, it's just natural to go back to that old comfortable wardrobe. And that's the problem. No, as Christians, we need to realize that God calls us to morality, and he's, he's going to introduce this today, and we're going to see this played out through the next chapter of Ephesians, that it's a morality that is calling us to a different kind of thing, not only the absence of sin, but the presence of righteousness. 
Now look at what he says. I want you to notice in verse 17, he starts by saying, I insist that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their, think- or their minds. And when he speaks of the, of the Gentiles, he's talking about unbelievers. Okay, insist that you must no longer walk like unbelievers. Now, that implies something. All of us, before we were believers, this was our liking or lifestyle as well. You must no longer walk. This is what's natural for us. This is, this is who we naturally are apart from Christ. And he's saying, this is who you were, but now in Christ, you shouldn't look that way anymore. You should have different lifestyles. You should have different clothes. And as he talks about this, he said, okay, you know, these shouldn't fit. And then he describes what we should have taken off. And, and if we haven't, these are the things that should no longer define us. And what, it's, what he teaches, it's not just wrong behavior, but it's wrong behavior that is ultimately rooted first in, in, in wrong thinking. And it, it's natural thinking for us. It's, it's who we were apart from Christ. And if someone doesn't have a relationship with Christ, you know, we're going to talk about some things. You're like, that doesn't make sense. Because apart from Christ, this is natural. This is who we are. And so this is this natural, you know, worldly thinking. And, it, and it's thinking that is at the core of wrong behavior. Look at it, verse 17 where it tells us, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now walk is behavior. Now why is it that we walk in that way? Because it's in the futility of their minds. So he's saying the ultimately wrong living starts with wrong thinking. It's, it's in this emptiness of their minds. I can't say that word for now. You know, futile. And, uh, you know, now you think about this, oftentimes we think of morality primarily in terms of behavior. And you're saying it's not beliefs, it's behavior, and this is what we're to do. But here you need to realize the Bible tells us wrong behavior always is rooted in wrong beliefs. Ultimately, why do we sin? Because we believe that at the moment of temptation, sin is what is going to bring us pleasure. Sin is what is going to meet our needs. It's it's not often bad theology, especially as followers of Christ. A lot of times we might have the right theology about sin and about God and about truth. But at the moment of temptation... I believe the promise of the temptation more than I believe the truth of God's word. I always do what I believe to be true. I never act against my beliefs. None of us do. And so our struggle with sin is always rooted in wrong thinking. In fact, you want to see this illustrated? Go back to the very first sin. Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve eat of the, uh, the tree and, and the fruit. Now what happened? Satan comes to Eve and he tells a lie. And in that lie, he says, well, God is holding something back. You know, that one tree, well, God's holding the best back. He's holding the good back. You know, if you take this, you're going to have life. You're going to be fulfilled. And so it started with wrong thinking, and the wrong thinking led to wrong behavior. That's always the case. Now, now Paul describes this as futile thinking. And that's not a word that we use that often. It's actually the same word that's used, or very similar word in the Old Testament, uh, in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, it's d- defined as um, vanity. And in both terms, it, it almost has this idea of soap bubbles. Now, then if in young children, I know even yesterday we had a bunch of bubbles out here, and, and when you think about, about young kids, they love bubbles. You, you know, these soap bubbles, you blow them, and, and you blow, and your kids, they'll chase them, and they'll try to catch them. And, and you know, you can never catch a bubble. Now, think about a bubble in a sense, shiny, and it's promising, and it looks like there's something there, but every time you go to catch it, it pops. You know, have you ever known a child to catch the bubble and say, man, I'm satisfied, I've got it? 
No, because it, it always pops. It always, it, it, it always promises but never delivers. And so what happens is you have kids, they try harder. They go out and they get more frantic about trying to catch the bubble, but you never can. And what the Bible teaches is that something says something about our world's thinking. See, the world offers these big and shiny promises. Oh, this is going to make you happy. This is going to bring fulfillment. This is going to bring meaning in life. And it's floating out there, and all you need to do is go and grab it. And we go and grab it, and as soon as we grab it, there might be a, this moment of pleasure, of, of capture, but then it pops. And it never delivers. It only leaves us hungry for more. Look at the writer of Ecclesiastes. I said that he used this similar word. And look at how he describes it. Now, now this was written by Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest people, most powerful people in the world at his time. He had the opportunity of pursuing every pleasure that that went in his mind because of his wealth and power. And so in Ecclesiastes 2, he talks about that. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So I'm doing all this. I'm pursuing it with full energy, with all my resources. Did it deliver? No. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, all was vanity, all was futile, all was a bubble that popped. It was a promise that that popped the moment that you grabbed it. And it was striving after the wind. It was chasing after the wind. You, you hear it, you sense it, but you can never catch it. And he said, no, it was empty, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And all my efforts, ultimately, it left, it, there's nothing to be gained. There's nothing there. There's no reality. My friends, we live in a world that is uh, defined by this kind of thinking, this kind of broken thinking. And we have to realize that as we live in that world, it's natural for us to be impacted by the world's thinking. And, and when we're impacted by the world's thinking, it will always impact our behavior as well. See, a lot of times when we struggle with sin, if we just focus in on changing our behavior, I'm going to change what I do, we're always going to fight a losing battle. Because it's not, not only shaping our behavior, it's reshaping our thinking, and we're going to see even beyond that, our character. Now, we're called to take off and then put on, and, and this is wrong thinking. And instead, we, we're going to see it's different thinking, biblical thoughts, godly thoughts. With the thoughts of the world are vanity. They're empty. They're, they're, they're bubble that pops. But instead, God has given us his thoughts. He's given us his word, and in his word, he gives us his truth. And, and this truth is something that is persevered and, and, and proven to be true over thousands of years. And the more that we understand God's truth about every issue of life, and the more that we understand, you know, not, not the bubble that, that is promised that's easy, but true life and true fulfillment that, that never lets us down. Now, I'm going to ask a couple questions even as we think about this morning, because what Paul's saying here is to each one of us, okay, we shouldn't let these old clothes define us. So the problem is that many of us, they do. Because so if you think about an area of, of struggle in your own sin or your own life, a, a, a sin that you struggle, a temptation, let me ask you, how is your thinking about that sin futile? How is that out of accord with God's thinking? How, how maybe you're thinking, it's not just try to do, you know, are you, are you thinking about it wrong? And let God explore your heart on that issue. Well, if we have wrong thinking, you know, if, if empty thinking in a sense, well, that not only we get into the empty thinking of the world, But over time, it disengages us from the truth of God's truth. Look what he says in verses 17 and 18. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So what happens is that at first we, you know, we, we you know, embrace the empty thinking of the world and over time we become more and more blind to God's truth. There are things that we maybe saw in the past that we kind of miss. And many of us know this in our own experience. You know, we do things that we start with, and then over time, you know, we just kind of, it gets more natural for us. It gets easier. Um, or, or we start, you know, start blaming things. So, for example, some of us, we can struggle with anger. And, uh, and we react in anger, and we say something that we regret. We know that isn't there. And then over time, well, it's, well, you know, it's just my genes. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm of this, um, you know, heritage and, and nationality and, well, my parents were this way or I have this person that's really difficult in my life and, and so therefore I'm blaming the other person and we buy a lie. What we're doing is that over time we get the empty thinking and then we become blind to God's truth and we're buying a, buying a lie and we're saying, well, it's really not my sin. You know, we're, we're really making ourselves, you know, hardened in a sense to God's, to God's truth and we're defining ourselves as the victims. And here's what happens when we define ourselves as a victim. Well, it's because of this, we're empowering sin. We're empowering the issue that is behind that. We're saying, because of my background, because of my parents, because of that difficult you know, person in the office, because of that, I don't have power over this. I'm just a victim. I have to do these things. And you see how wrong thinking, empty thinking, makes us disengaging us from God's truth. Why? Because ultimately, it's callousing our hearts. It's making us more and more calloused. Look at verses 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice any kind of, all, every kind of impurity. And so we develop, not only we, our thinking is wrong, but then our consciences become wrong. We become calloused. We become, you know, what what was once soft and what God wants to be soft and a tenderness to the leading of his Holy Spirit becomes calloused. And we become unable, in a sense, to sense God's will in our life, let alone respond to it. And again, we've got to look at this in our own life. You know, if there's an area that you're struggling with, is it, is it something that you're becoming callous to? Is, are you sensitive to God's leading or, or you've become hard to it? You know, first we feel convicted about something and, and then we do it more and more. And next thing you know, we just have become comfortable. And my friends, even in this, we've got to realize the danger of even flirting and playing with sin. You know, sometimes we think, well, I'm going to do this, and I know it's wrong, and I'm going to... My friends, if we start playing with sin, the result will become a more calloused heart. You know, I can't play with sin and continue to dip my toe in that water and maintain a soft and tender heart before God. I'm going to become a more callous person. And it's not sometimes you say, well, I know this is wrong, but I'm really following God here. It's not like I have different parts of my heart that part of my heart can become callous and part of it is still right with God. No, if there's calluses forming in one part of my heart, then all of my heart is becoming calloused. And I'm kidding myself if, they, if I think otherwise. In fact, when we look at that, the true nature of our heart is really most revealed in our area of greatest struggle. Are we surrendering to God there or we become callous there? We've got to be careful on this. Because if we, you know, we have wrong thinking that this engages from God's word, we get a calloused heart, and ultimately, if we're not careful, what happens is we in time begin to take the things that God says is a sin, a vice, and we redefine it into a virtue that's something to be pursued. Look at what he says in verse 19. 
We not only lose the ability to see right and wrong, but he says we turn ourselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what he's saying here is that what happens is that we literally now see this as a good thing. We, we pursue this. And this is the empty thinking of our world. And uh, so much so that, you know, over time that the wisdom of our world becomes, you know, if it feels right, then it must be right. And so we see this play out in the value system of our world. So think about this. How in, many, in many people's eyes, you know, a conservative Bible-believing Christian, well, we're intolerant, and we're extremists, and, and we're hateful. And, and meanwhile, we have things like abortion of killing unborn children, homosexuality, or transgender. Oh, that's celebrated. And, and those are the heroes and the people that are living that out. Well, they're, we're going to celebrate. They're, they're virtuous. And meanwhile, anybody that talks about, you know, literally at times just quoting from God's word, well, well, that's a vice. Well, that's terrible. We've got to see how this plays out. And it's not only looking at the culture and saying, well, that's what they do. Paul's warning is that this is what we can do if we're not careful. See, we can do the same thing. We can in our own life, I might look at, at the world and say, well, they're blind there. And meanwhile, I'm blind in other areas. So what, again, what happens is we begin a lifestyle, a pattern, and then over time, we become callous to it. And then in time, we even find, we find not only an excuse, but a justification. You know, I see this all the time, especially in, like in sexual matters. As an example, we see, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, I know that the Bible says it's wrong to live together, it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. And, but then you'll see a couple and saying, yeah, but... You know, God wants us to start off on a good footing, so hey, let's live together beforehand so we can save money because now we're just, you know, we're just paying one rent. And God wants us to do that. Or, you know, uh, and I know seniors, it's, this is more and more common among seniors. And, you know, they've, you know they're divorced, they've lost their, their spouses, and they're like, well, we've got this retirement account, and if we, if we live together, then we're saving money, but if we get married, then we lose this extra income. And so now I'm justifying it as something that is good. Or, you know, I even had somebody that I talked to not long ago where, where he's, he's telling me, well, I'm living with this girl, and she's not a Christian, and, and in living together, I have a chance to be able to expose her to Christianity and hopefully lead her to Christ. And, and I'm saying, so God, you think that God wants you to disobey him on sexual issues so you can live out a compromised Christian life before this woman and think that that's going to help her find Christ? But he justified it. He's explaining it. And we all can do this. And we've got to be aware of that. We've got to ask, okay, if I'm struggling, have I done that? Could I be guilty of that? Because that's what Paul is warning us. We shouldn't do that. There are some of us where we're still wearing these old clothes and they don't fit anymore. They don't belong. So, so how do we change this? What is the, what's the hope? What's the key to transformation? The key is not trying harder. It's, it's literally what he says, character transformation. See, what we might expect Paul to do is to take us down a path of rules. Well, these are the rules that they're breaking and used to do these things, and now you shouldn't do these things anymore. So don't do the, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with the girls that do. You know, here's a different set of rules. Keep these rules. You know, take off these bad desires. And No, but look what he says. Look, look at verse 20, if you have your Bibles open. But that's not the way that you learn Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I want to see. That's not the morality you learned. That's not what he says. That's not the theology you learned. That's not what he says. What does he say? That's not the way that you learned Christ. What is the key here? What's he calling us to? Not information, not self-discipline, not morality in a sense, relationship. 
That's not the way that you learned Christ. It's a relationship with him. The goal of life isn't, it isn't change morality. The goal of Christian life isn't to say that I've got this change morality that, that, our, that my, my action is just different. That's, that's a sub, you know, that's a, a side effect in a sense. But what you've got to realize, it's not just about rules that we keep. It's not just about trying harder. It's not just saying no to temptation. The ultimate goal isn't change morality. The ultimate goal is a close relationship with God a close walk with him, knowing him, literally putting on Jesus. And if we put on Jesus and know him in this way, a changed life will be the byproduct. So then why does he spend all this time talking about sin? We're going to see in coming weeks, he goes to very specific areas and say, take this sin off and put this righteousness on. Why does he do that? Well, because what he wants us to realize, he starts here by saying, I want you to realize that our struggle is ultimately not self-discipline. It's not about temptation and sin. It's ultimately our struggle is exposing a, a lack of relationship with God, a lack of closeness with, with God. Why do I give in to temptation? Why do I struggle with sin? Because I'm not as close to Jesus as I need to be. I'm not putting him on. I'm not, I'm not be, you know, surrounding myself with him. And my sin exposes my brokenness. That's not how I'm broken. It exposes the deeper thing. See, ultimately, when we look at this, the Bible consistently teaches this, that my real problem isn't what I do, it's who I am. And what I do is just an expression of who I am. It's just revealing the, the character problem that I have. My problem isn't my sin, it's that I'm a sinner. See, we don't want to admit this. I would rather it be my behavior. I would rather it be, you know, here's what I did. And, and you know, because then I do it, and I said, well, I'm not really not like that. And, boy, I did that. And, well, you know, well, that was just a weak moment where this person cut me off, and, and that's why I swore. Or this, you know, I'm responding to this. They brought out the worst in me, and so it was their fault, and it's not me. And the Bible consistently says, no, the problem is, is not primarily the action. The problem is the character. And when we look at any time that we do anything sinful, why is it that I do something sinful? Well, because my character's slipping out, and, and that, that other thing that I'm blaming, all that was is it something that renewed or re, removed some of my self-defenses. So, so my self-will was lowered a little bit, and the real me slipped out. I couldn't hide the real me that much. So we look at this and say, what are we called to do? We have to admit that a problem is far deeper than... I would ever want to admit. In fact, it's so deep, I really can't solve it myself. You see, because if it's my action, I can try harder to have more self-discipline and change my action. If it's my character, how do I change my character? How do I change myself? How do I change my, myself inwardly? I can't. So what do we do? We have to come to God and ask him to invade our life and to change us. Now, do we have a part? Yes, we do. Our part is admitting our need and surrendering. It's admitting that, God, I don't have the strength. I've tried to do this, and, and I come in my weakness, and, and I ask you to do in me what I cannot do. I not only ask you, I give you the right to do that. I give you the right to change me from the inside out. And that means changing my desires and, and taking things away and pointing things out. And that's hard to do. There's a self-sacrifice in there. But, but i got to ask you to do that. It, but as long as I'm seeing it as my action, I'm trying to do it in my own strength, and I will always lose that. See, I ultimately never have what it takes. I need to realize that it's, that it's a bigger problem. It's a bigger problem of my heart. And God needs to change me from the inside out. And, and my, my ultimate goal isn't just behavior, it's closeness with God. The more that I become closer to him, the more I will become like him. That's the side effect. 
So what does this look like? If I look at this, and, and, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see just introduced in these verses, and we're going to see this played out repeatedly over the weeks to come. He talks about these clothing terms of taking off old clothes, taking off the sin, and putting on the righteousness. Now look at this introduction in verses 22 to 24. It says, he calls us to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after like, the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, when we look at this, we often think, okay, what we need to do is self-control, try to have behavior and just, you know, try harder. And, and um, you know, but again, that just doesn't work, and we know it doesn't work. But our hope is surrender to God and ask him to change our character. But that starts with asking him to take off. The first step of this is, as it says in, there in verse 22, put off your old self. Now, you know, in the Bible, numerous times it talks about starting a relationship with God in terms that may be different language, but it's the same concept. The words that we often hear are the, the concepts of confession and repentance. God calls us to confess our sins, to repent of our sins. That's how we start a relationship with God. That's taking off. That's the same idea. Now, what does re- confession mean? Confession means not just that we get caught and we admit, I'm caught, I'm guilty. That's oftentimes what happens. It means that we see our sin as God sees it. Not only that it's wrong, but the wrongness behind it. Look what it says in 1 John about how this is where we start in our relationship with God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It starts with this confessing our sin, agreeing with God. Now think about everything that Paul had just said in verses 17 through 19. That sin is not just what we do, it's broken thinking and it's hardness of heart before God. And, and so what it means is that we not only admit, God, I did this, was wrong, but God, I admit that behind this, I have broken thinking. Behind this, I have hardness of heart. God, behind this, I, there are things that are, that are callous conscience. And God, I agree with you and I need you to change me about that. It's not just admitting or feeling some regret over what we did. It means God point out to me not only what was wrong, but why it was wrong. And I give you the right to point that out. And God, I want you to change me. I want you to to help me to see. Even look in verse 22. What does he say? He says that we take off this old self that was the former manner of life through that is corrupt through deceitful uh, desires. Do we see it as corrupt? Sometimes we do something wrong and it's like I feel guilty, but I don't think it's corrupt. I don't think it stinks. I don't think it's rotten. I don't hate it. God hates our sin. He looks at it and he says, this, this is rotten. And until we see it the way God sees it, that we hate it, that we think it's rotten, that it's, you know, that it's corrupt, and we want to get rid of it, see, we're not going to ever know victory. It's not only this idea of, con- of, of confession, but then it also talks about repentance. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus talks about the message in kind of Luke's version of the of, uh, the Great Commission, and he calls us, he says, we're going to preach this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the message that should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, repentance. And this, what is for repentance? Repentance means to change, to literally you know, change your mind, to turn around. And so it's not only that I admit, but God, because this is corrupt, I want to take it off, I want to get rid of it, and I want to go this different way. I want to take off the old, and then I want to put something new on I want, to be, I want a different character, a different life. And so that it really says that we take off the old, verse 24, then that we were renewed in the spirit of our mind to put on the new self created after likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We put on this new character. 
But again, here's what I want you to realize. The new character isn't just rules. It's not the things that you, okay, you can't do this, and now you do this. It's not just that. It's character. It's not what we do. It's who we are, that we become like Christ. It's character of righteousness and holiness. See, when you think about this, again, when we think of the rules, we think of morality often just as the absence of sin. Okay, again, I've taken this off, and because I don't do this, well, now, you know, I I don't do these bad things. And so we think of it as the absence. But the distinctive mark of of, of, of Christian morality isn't the absence of sin. It isn't what we don't do. The distinctive mark of Christian morality and Christian ethics and character is the presence of our righteousness, our presence of our Christ-likeness, that we are different. It's, who we, it's not what we, who we aren't, it's who we are. See, this is what Paul illustrates, uh, it's introduces here, and we're going to see this repeatedly in the coming weeks. He's going to come to our speech next week, and then he's going to talk about anger, and then he's going to talk about our, you know, and, uh, um, you know, how we talk about each other, and he's going to talk about work and generosity, and, and issue after issue, he's going to say, take this off and put this on. Take this off. And we've got to realize that the righteousness far exceeds the lack of sin. Let me give you just one little example. Okay, for those who are married, do you remember your wedding vows? Now, a lot of people might say your wedding vows is that you can't cheat, can't have affairs, you know, you can't, you know, can't date, you can't. Now, is that your wedding vow? No, that, that was a little part of it, but that's not the main vow that you made. Now, I know a lot of people who think that's what it is. Now, if you have somebody that says, well, I'm not doing this. I know the, you know, non-believer, beforehand I had affairs. I don't do that anymore, so I don't have affairs. Now, can you have someone who doesn't have affairs that isn't cheating on their spouse and still be a lousy spouse? Yeah. Yeah, and I know a lot of people that are like that. But you know what your vow was? Your vow was to love, honor, and cherish until God separates you by death. It was to love that way in times of sickness and health and plenty and want, and good, you know, in good times and bad. It was that pursuit. It was loving each other self-sacrificially, putting the other person first, treating them like Christ treated us, being gracious and loving and forgiving and keeping no record of wrongs. That's a higher calling. That's righteousness. It's not the, I took off adultery. No, put on righteousness. And I'll tell you, if you have someone who really puts that on and loves their spouse that way, adultery doesn't fit. If you really love your spouse that way, adultery is not that much of a temptation. Because when you are wearing righteousness, the old stuff just doesn't fit anymore. But if all you've done is taken off the wrong stuff and you don't, let's say that, if you adult adultery, but you're not pursuing loving your spouse, he, sooner or later you're going to be tempted to go back and put on those old comfortable clothes because there's nothing that you're wearing that, that takes its place. And that's the idea that we're going to see played out here, that God calls us to this character of righteousness. It starts by taking off the old, putting on the new. But even in taking off the old and putting on the new, ultimately it's putting on a relationship with Christ. But in, in putting on this relationship of Christ, see, there's, there's one place that sometimes people will miss this, that some people have this perspective of, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and, and I pray and ask him to forgive my sins, and so you know, I'm guilty, and I, I agree with him, and, and, I, and I, he's my Savior. I know he's forgiven me. No, you've got to realize it's not just that I ask him to forgive me, but in taking off the old and putting on the new, it's that I'm putting on all that Jesus is. I'm taking a relationship with all that he is. And he not only died for my sins so that he could forgive me and be my savior, but the one who died for my sins was God Almighty. 
who is Lord of all. And what this means is that for me to truly have this kind of relationship with Jesus, it means that I need to come to him and I say, God, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how to do it. But I give you the right to change me. I give you the right to whatever you call a sin, you, you have the right to call it. I will, I will change. I will give you the right to change. God, I give you the right to take away my desires. I can't beat this addiction. I can't beat, but I give you the right to, to change my desires. God, I need you to not only save me from my sins, I need you to be my Lord. And for us to truly embrace Jesus for all he is, it means that we put on Jesus not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. That we come to him and we say, God, I, I, I ask you to take off what was there. I ask, give you the right to change all that I am. I give you the right to define what's right and wrong. God, I need you to be the one who not only forgives me for my sins, but the one who changes me. I embrace you as my Lord and my Savior. And there have been some that maybe, you know, I prayed a prayer way back when, and my life hasn't changed. And, and you look at that, and your life hasn't changed that much. And well, maybe that's because you just have come, and you, you know, your confession is, I agree it's wrong, but God, I, I want to see it the way you see it. And it's never really this repentance of, God, I really want to leave it behind. I want to take it off. I want to put on what's new. That maybe you say, God, I just want forgiveness, but I don't want you to be my Lord. And the only way to truly embrace Christ, the only way to accept him is to accept him for who he is. And for some here, that may be this invitation of just saying, do you understand that God loves you, that this is the way you are? He comes and you might say, oh, I don't deserve, I don't, you know. You'd come, we come in our mess. We don't change the clothes to come to him. We come with all of our mess and we say, God, here's my clothes, but I come to you as the Lord and Savior. I give you the right to take these off and to change me. And, and I ask you for your forgiveness. I surrender to your lordship in my life. I don't want to live after the bubbles of life. I want to live for something of, that's real, that's substantive. If you've never asked Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to do so this morning. Even as we take communion, that's a symbol of what that is. It may be just of saying, God, I agree with you. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to, to forgive me for my sins, to be my Lord and Savior, to give you the right to change me. Begin that process. For some of us, we've done that in the past. But the fact is, that even though we've done that in the past and we meant it at that time, our life doesn't reflect that. We still, have, we still look an awful lot like who we used to live. We're still wearing the old clothes. And that's where God's word is telling us, don't walk like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers. No, don't do that any longer. That's who you were. That's not who you are. And so God's calling each, for those of us who are in the midst of that, midst of that struggle to say, okay, let God's words, where's the wrong thinking? Where's the hardness of heart? Where's the callous? Where's, where's the justification? And let God expose that and say, God, take that off. I want to see it for the way you see it. And God, I want to come again, not fixing myself, but coming and bringing my brokenness, bringing my need, and asking you to accomplish in me what only you can do. My friends, if you do that today, he's going to meet us here. Because that's what communion is about. It's about us being invited to this intimate relationship with Christ, into this intimate meal, being given new clothes. I think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son came, and he had a mess. He had been living with pigs, and and the, the father came and embraced him and gave him new clothes and invited him to the meal because he was willing to ask and accept the grace of the father. And that is it for this week's message. If you'd like to get in touch, send us a text to 330-644-6121. You can learn more about our events and community groups at ccpl.life connect. There you can also send in a prayer request. 
we would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.